Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, welcoming a longtime ally. We will stand up for Ukraine to be the master of their own future. The President of the European Commission addresses Parliament, renewing ties as Russia wages war along its borders and discussing a joint future that involves Canadian resources. Also... What does this rapporteur even do? It sounds like a fake job. Reacting to the Trudeau government's plan to deal with foreign interference, can the government avoid a full and independent public inquiry? Will Canadian trust be restored by anything else? And we talk about it a lot, but somehow there's no momentum. Building a better and more equitable economy. What stands in the way of future prosperity for this country? We'll speak to former Deputy Prime Minister Liberal Anne McClellan and former Deputy Leader for the Conservative Party Lisa Raitt. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It's a visit short in time but long in meaning. Ursula von der Leyen, the first woman president of the European Commission coming to Canada to renew long-standing ties, to forge new partnerships for future prosperity, and to address Canada's parliament earlier this evening. We will never accept that a military power with fantasies of empire rolls the tanks across an international border. We will never accept that Putin denies the very existence of Ukraine as a state and as a nation. We will never accept this threat to European security and to the very foundation of our international community. And I know that Canada's commitment is just as adamant as ours. Canada and the European Union will uphold the UN Charter. We will stand up for Ukraine to be the master of their own future. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And we will keep supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. Ursula von der Leyen in the House of Commons this evening. Now, earlier today, the European Commission president was also at CFB Kingston. There, she met with Canadian Forces personnel who helped with Ukrainian refugees in Poland. And during that visit, this is what the Prime Minister had to say about Canada's relationship with the EU. There is so much that Canada and Europe share, a commitment to the people of Ukraine, to defending democracy and international law and to protecting human rights. Shared values like gender equality and a commitment to growing the middle class and making sure people have good careers they can be proud of and build their families and communities around. And a belief that we can and will build a strong, healthy future for generations to come. With more on President von der Leyen's visit to Canada, we're now joined by Janice Stein, international relations expert and the founding director of the Monk School of Global and Public Affairs. Janice, always great to see you. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm great to be with you, Michael. Now, President von der Leyen, uh, she does come as Russia wages war along EU borders uh, with its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Talk to us about how important this visit is, given that context. 
It really is important, Michael, and you get a sense of that because she's in, been invited to address uh, the House of Commons. Why so important now? One, keeping this coalition together is a critical minimum uh, for Ukraine to have a chance of success. And there are frictions in the coalition. The Germans, the French, the Italians, uh, yes, they, 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 they speak the speech in a sense, but uh, it is clear they are worried about the long-term consequences. Canada, the United States, the East European countries, the Baltics, uh, those are the countries that are leaning in on this. No surprise that she is coming here to do two things, really, to thank Canada for its support and to shore it up. Mm -hmm. Now, we hear it from President Zelensky quite often that the war uh, Ukraine is fighting right now is a war for all democratic countries and for all of Europe. How important for Europe is Canada's continued commitment to Ukraine's defense? He hinted at it a bit there, Janice, but talk to us a bit more about just how critical Canada's support is for Europe and Ukraine. It really is, Michael, from two perspectives. One, uh, much to the chagrin of the Europeans, frankly, uh, were the United States not leading on this, uh, we would not be anywhere, frankly. The United States has supplied the bulk of the equipment and the bulk of the leadership. Canada is the other North American partner. Uh, it is really important. It's always had a voice in Washington, but also um, been attentive to Europe. Canada is the third biggest lender to Ukraine. It has given aid, direct aid. Uh, and so it, it is punching above its weight on Ukraine, partly because we have such a large Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, and therefore this is front and center on the foreign policy agenda. So shoring up that Canadian support and making sure that we stay engaged has to be a priority for her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, uh, von der Leyen is also here to talk about uh, things like green hydrogen, yeah. critical minerals, uh, and there is the economic side of that, certainly. But talk to us about how important these resources are as Western democracies increasingly talk about friendshoring to achieve a political end. Yeah, and what do we mean by friendshoring? This is a, a phrase that Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury in Washington, used. What she really means, Michael, is secure your supply chains on critical issues, on issues that are absolutely essential to the national security. So it is not cut off all trade with China. It is cut off the import of products from China that are essential to our national security. Uh, critical minerals are critical. They are going to be key components in the manufacture of electric batteries. Uh, they are key across so much of the high precision manufacturing. And Canada, it can make a contribution here if in fact we move more quickly in mining than we normally do. It's interesting too, Michael, and this probably doesn't get talked about as much. The Europeans um, are struggling with the Buy America that mm -hmm. privileges North American suppliers. You know, we struggled uh, to get in under that wire and be included not only as 
American manufacturers, but North American manufacturers. Europeans are making themselves heard. They are not happy about this. So this discussion um, of critical minerals and of the broader supply chain uh, will work both ways in Ottawa. Those will be, I think, important and sensitive discussions that will take place. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do want to build on that because, of course, the United States is our largest trading partner, our, our nearest neighbor, uh, strongest ally. But how important is the Canada-European relationship for this country's continued prosperity? You know, uh, the United States, as you just said, Michael, is our biggest buyer. 70% of what we export still goes to the United States. Uh, after that, actually, uh, is China, uh, which is surprising. Uh, so, and, and here's what's frustrating, Michael. We have a free trade agreement with, that we negotiated with Europe, CSPAN. And yet our exporters and our private sector businesses have not really taken advantage of that opportunity to the fullest extent possible. Um, we need to do better. We need to do better. Uh, the government is, and this is not partisan, both, uh, both conservative and liberal governments have moved forward with free trade agreements, Europe being the prime example, but none of it is going to matter much if our private sector doesn't get engaged to explore the opportunities. Short answer to your question, it should be more important than it is. Well, certainly a matter that we're, we're considering as von der Leyen makes her way to this country. Janice, always so good to speak with you. Thank you for putting that uh, into context for us tonight. Always a pleasure. Now, as the Prime Minister hosted the European Commission President, opposition members were reacting to Justin Trudeau's announcement from last night. Investigations into foreign interference, but not a public inquiry, and a special rapporteur who would make expert recommendations on combating foreign interference. Take a listen to what we heard today from both the Conservative and the NDP leader. Why do we need a special rapporteur? What does this rapporteur even do? It sounds like a fake job. We need someone who actually has a real work plan. And what we said is we need an independent and open investigation headed by someone approved by all parties in the House of Commons, not another liberal establishment Ottawa insider. Conservatives are more interested in playing games with this. They're using the committee process as a opportunity or forum to score political points. We think the question of defending our democracy is not an area to score political points. It's about protecting democracy. And that's why we're remaining very measured that we want a public inquiry because we want to get to the, the real nature of the problems and then ultimately get to solutions to safeguard and protect our democracy. Well, with more, we are now joined by Michael Wernick. Mr. Wernick served as Clerk of the Privy Council from 2016 to 2019. He is currently the Jaroslawski Chair in Public Service Management at the University of Ottawa. Mr. Wernick, thank you for making the time this evening. Thanks for reaching out. Now, as you know, uh, the Prime Minister has ordered these two reviews into Chinese interference. He says he will also soon appoint a special rapporteur. But it's not the independent inquiry the opposition has been calling for. Will these measures, do you think, be enough to assure Canadians that the electoral uh, process is safe or at the very least responding properly to foreign interference? 
Well, I, sh I should say that, uh, like everybody else, I've just read the press communique and a couple of reaction articles. Uh, we're all waiting for some of the details on the mandate and powers of, uh, of the rapporteur and, and the scope of the study that the uh, parliamentary committee and the agency will take on. I, I'd insist right away that uh, this is about more than China. Uh, foreign interference is practiced by other countries and other actors, and it's about more than elections. That's the entire period between elections, and I, I hope that the mandate for all of these studies will be, um, you know, the largest one possible to, to deal with the, the issue in its entirety. Well, as you say, the largest one possible, and the Prime Minister has not shut the door to uh, public inquiry. He says if that is what mm -hmm. this rapporteur, whoever that will be, recommends, mm -hmm. that a public inquiry is still a possibility. Do you think ultimately that one is going to be needed? You, you suggest it's going to be, to, to be effective. It needs to be fairly wide-reaching. So will a public inquiry be needed? Well, two points. An inquiry would always be of limited use because there are going to be issues about access to classified information and sources, and there'll be a limit to how, how transparent it can be um, to, to do its job. There's always going to be a balance between uh, providing the transparency that our, our parliamentarians are looking for and the Canadians are looking for in order to build confidence. But the last thing you want to do is actually compromise the ability of our security and intelligence agencies uh, to collect that intelligence and provide it in the future. So that, that's a difficult balance to strike. Uh, I think the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians is a special vehicle of politicians with security clearances and some background in this area is a good tool. Uh, my point about the inquiry or the rapporteur is why are we doing these things in sequence? Any rapporteur who's serious about these issues, any inquiry that's serious about these issues is going to recommend inevitably that Canada take the Australian and British models of foreign interference legislation and registry of foreign agents and adapt them and bring them to Canada. We could start on that now in parallel while these other exercises are, are going on. Okay, let's dig into to that because it's not the first time you've talked about the Australian model in terms of handling mm -hmm. with foreign interference. If you were to, to actually copy and paste that, as you suggested earlier, uh, to the Canadian experience, what would that look like? I think it would look very much like the Australian law from what I understand. Um, it is essentially a model similar to our lobbyist registry. Um, it, it defines certain kinds of activities, requires people uh, to register uh, those activities and their contacts. Um, so it's similar to lobbyist legislation. It's only going to capture some part of the issue. Um, as I think I said elsewhere, real criminals don't register their guns at gun registries and real spies are not going to register at a registry of foreign agents. But it will provide some transparency about the scope of foreign activity in Canada, which Canadians, I think, are a little bit innocent about. And it will deter certain kinds of activity uh, in the future. My, now, my understanding of what happens in Australia as well is that there's a, an annual public report uh, from, from, mm -hmm. from the bodies involved. And that does make me wonder uh, about how this should have been handled in the first place. Should Parliament, do you think, and the Canadian public uh, have been informed of the interference earlier? Do you think that should have happened? Should, have been, should it have been through the government instead of leaks through the press? Well, it was through the government in the sense that uh, the government in 2017, uh, and I was there at the time, created a panel to look at foreign interference during the election periods and, if necessary, bring it to the attention of Canadians. That was following the experience of Russian interference in the French and German and American elections. 
that panel was active in the 2019 and 2021 elections and did report on its findings. And I'm sure their experience in 2019 informed how they went about it in 2021 and their experience in 2021 will inform their activity in future. Um, there's always going to be a judgment required about whether the attempts uh, by foreign actors uh, to interfere in our political processes are serious enough uh, to blow the whistle in the middle of an election campaign, which is a, a very big thing, because then that becomes part of the election itself. You know, that said, though, you know, last week there was an Angus Reid poll that came out. It revealed that 42 uh, percent of conservative voters believe the 2021 election was stolen because of Chinese interference. What does that tell you about the urgency of this moment? Well, that's my point, is that uh, we could get on uh, and there could be some cooperation between our political parties to pass legislation modeled on the British and uh, Australian model. Uh, it's a minority parliament. There's no reason that the bill couldn't be tabled in one of our parliamentary committees, perhaps in the Senate first. It could be studied, debated, amended, made better, and then all of our political parties would own it. Mr. Warnick, I really appreciate your insight. Thank you for the time tonight. Thanks for asking. What will it take to secure a more prosperous future for all Canadians? Now, that's a question that's been top of mind for two former politicians who now co-chair the Coalition for a Better Future. Made up of both for- and non-profit organizations, this coalition has been tracking 21 key statistics. They released their latest scorecard today, and by tackling these priorities, while well, the coalition believes Canada can become one of the most, quote, competitive, inclusive, and sustainable economies in the world. Well, with more on the Coalition for a Better Future scorecard, we're now joined by the group's co-chairs, former Deputy Prime Minister Anne McClellan and former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party, Lisa Raitt. Hello to both of you. Hi, Michael. Hello, Michael. So, Anne, I'm going to begin with you because your scorecard... Uh, does point to certain strengths, but it also talks about persistent weaknesses in the Canadian economy. Uh, can you talk to us about that? What exactly are the weaknesses? How do they affect our prosperity? Sure, and I think the word you used, persistent weaknesses, is uh, good because the weaknesses, the big weaknesses we've identified in the scorecard have been with us for a while. For example, uh, low private sector investment in R&D. Uh, low uh, investment in machinery and equipment, low investment in intangible assets, IP. What does that all speak to? That speaks to productivity, it speaks to growth, right? If you're not investing in machines and equipment, if you're not investing in IP, are you actually equipping your workforce with the tools they need to be more productive on a per hour basis? These have been persistent, to use your word, problems in the Canadian economy, and we cannot afford to see this continue. One other I want to flag, which I uh, matters to me a lot, and that's around adult or adult education. Mm -hmm. We lag our Scandinavian neighbors in uh, quite a shocking way, actually. And adult education, ongoing training if you're on the job, um, that also speaks to productivity, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of making sure your workforce has the skill set, and we talk about reskilling, upskilling, whatever, on the job training, but adult education is really important to ensure a better society, but worker productivity and therefore 
growth, economic growth. You know, it's interesting is that we've been talking about productivity for so long now in yeah. this country. And in a lot of ways, when you look at this scorecard, it breaks it up in, into tangibles that people can understand mm -hmm. better. But what can governments do then to increase productivity? What type of policies do we need to see in order to, to see that go up yeah. if we want to secure future prosperity? So the coalition is a broad, I would say, collaboration of 144 organizations. And as Anne and I talk about a lot, sometimes when you say Canada is not productive, people within that collaboration say, well, are you saying we're not working hard enough? And that's not the case, because what we do know is that we're actually working more hours but we're not being as productive in those hours. So we're hoping that this information is gonna help inform public policymakers on where they have to deploy whatever tools they're gonna to have. We're not quite in the business of telling governments or public companies what to do, but we are highlighting, you've got a big problem and it's dropping a lot, it's impacting median wage, it's gonna impact immigration because, think about it this way, as we seek to bring in more new Canadians, if we're not offering a very good median wage, and if we're not showing that we're doing well as a country in GDP stats, why are they giving up their lives in another part of the world to come here? I mean, people want to do better. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it all kind of knits together. So my message is we have to really focus on productivity. Don't assume it's because people aren't working hard enough because that's not the case at all. The reality is, is that we have to look at business investment in mm -hmm. a serious way. And what the government needs to do is figure out how they're going to encourage business investment. Because guess what? The United States has figured it out. They have increased in terms of how they're going to be increasing the investment in their business, yet we're not. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point that Lisa raises, Anne, because, you know, when you talk about investments, of course, mm -hmm. that's private investment. Yeah. Right. And the, the public can only do so much. Mm -hmm. So so talk to us about, the, and, and I take and I take your point, Lisa, that your, your job is not yeah. to tell people what to do, but what have you seen in terms of examples that have been helpful? Yeah. Well, if you think about government, for example, uh, there are, tools, for example, the research and development tax credits. Mm -hmm. You can use the tax system, as many countries, and we do, to incentivize uh, further private sector investment. Uh, you can create programs. For example, in the upskilling and reskilling area, a lot of government dollars, not only federal dollars, but uh, other orders of government, are going into trying to match uh, the jobs of the future with the skills that people have, right? And preparing people for those jobs. Maybe they're in clean tech. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're in carbon capture and storage as opposed to just traditional oil and gas jobs. Mm -hmm. But you, government and the private sector have to work together. One of the things Lisa and I mm -hmm. hear all the time, the importance of collaboration right? People don't want their governments fighting with each other. They don't want the private sector not working with governments, governments not listening to the private sector. One of the messages, and it's reiterated by everyone really, mm -hmm. is collaboration. We have to do a better job of working together because otherwise uh, the rest of the world is out there figuring this out and we can't afford these uh, you know what many people view as just bickering right mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and and petty self-interest mm -hmm. what we need to do is figure out how we work together to take on the world not each other mm -hmm. now interesting when you go through the report you're also bringing out the issue of, of inclusivity yeah mm -hmm. and, and you talk about progress that's been 
been made in terms of, for example, the number of women in senior management roles now, the, the participation in the labor market of indigenous populations yes. in this country. But you also, in this scorecard, actually purposely single out inclusivity when it comes to urban versus rural areas. Yeah. Why was that important? It was important because if you're talking about the transition of the economy, and we are talking about the transition in the economy towards net zero, we picked 2030 for a very good reason, and it's because that's what we're leaning up against in terms of metrics that we want to attain for going towards a net zero. Um, the reality is, is that some communities are going to be really impacted by that transition, and a lot of them are rural. For example, let's take a, a rural community that relies upon diesel. Wow, they're going to really feel it, aren't they? Because they're not necessarily going to be converting off of diesel in a quick way. We thought it'd be important to take a look at it from a rural point of view, just to make sure that we understand the economy doesn't just happen in the big cities in the country, and that policymakers understand the importance of the rural lens, and that's what we're calling it, the rural lens. And the last part I would have to say, Michael, it's to our best interest, because agriculture is going to be so important as we move forward. I mean, Canada can feed the world, and we should definitely, if we're picking industries that we're going to do well in, that is definitely one, and that is very much the heartland of Canada. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, oh sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that coming out of COVID, one of the things we learned was that rural and small town Canada doesn't have the access to broadband mm -hmm. that communities need, you know, to educate your kids during COVID yep. when the schools were closed. What we were hearing in parts of northern Alberta was that the kids actually didn't have the broadband capacity. Yep. Their communities didn't in the school, well, not in the schools, but at home, to be able to learn for a number of hours online effectively. And uh, you need uh, high quality, high speed broadband uh, to ensure that uh, rural and small towns are connected to the markets, right? Uh, connected to all aspects of life. Um, you know, we all know sitting here uh, what how important that is to what we do mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. And that's why one of the metrics, one of our 21 metrics, is around broadband access because it's going to be hard to imagine economic growth without yeah. having Everybody involved. The right access yeah. to broadband. Mm -hmm. And it's getting better. Yeah, it is. It's getting it better. Is. Our so numbers are scored. Governments. Yes. Yeah. We okay. get great product. And the, and all the, the governments. private sector companies, they're too, right? Together. Who deliver yeah. Uh, broadband. Um, yeah, good point. It's getting better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, some sunshine. <laughs> Quickly, running out, running out of time here. But, you know, your scorecard comes out just weeks before the next federal budget. Yeah. What do you hope comes out of it? Okay, urgency, first and foremost. Um, we can't we cannot be in a situation where we're wondering and pondering how we're going to increase our median income to what we want it to be by 2030 because people's livelihoods and people's choices on where they want to live will come to bear i mean we can take a look at generation z and we can think about well what are their choices going to be we're providing them really inf information that's very interesting they can compare us to the rest of the world and determine whether or not they want to use their skills here in canada or do they want to have a higher wage and more disposable income by living in the United States? And that is a comparator that is, is super important. So driving that home to our federal politicians, that time is of the essence. And we are not very far from 2030 at all. Mm -hmm. Focus. Urgency, <clears throat> absolutely, but focus. I think uh, governments at all levels, orders of government, need to figure out what are the things, and looking at our scorecard, where 
are our weaknesses, yeah. where are the things we're doing well. We need to focus on shoring up uh, the weaknesses. Um, why, for example, um, haven't we been able to, for the past 30 years, really move the productivity per worker in this country? Mm -hmm. Well, coming out of COVID, people talked about building back better. It's an inflection point. Well, let's figure out why we haven't been able to move that productivity number very much at all. and that will fo force us to focus on what we've done in the past, maybe didn't work. So what do we need to try in the future to get that number up? Okay, well, the Coalition for a Better Future, the scorecard, yeah. you can see it online. Uh, but for now, and Lisa, thank you for the time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much. And that is our program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here on CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.